Hey everybody, it's Drew Horning. Susan Bolio is our guest. I'm reminded of the term wounded healer. It's a person deeply committed to healing others and aware and inspired by and motivated by their own healing. Susan is a wounded healer as in a way all Hoffman teachers are. We all have patterns. I want to share a few things. One is that there is mention of suicide here. And so just be aware that this may not be suitable for all audiences. Also, there is so much mentioned in this episode and it will be in the show notes. So do check those out on our website. Please enjoy this episode with Susan Bolio. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Susan Bolio is with us. Welcome, Susan. Thanks so much, Drew, for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Will you just share a quick story about that name and the pronunciation? Yeah. So my last name is Bolio, and I was explaining to Drew, it's very Americanized because it actually is French. It uh, would be pronounced Bolio, and it means beautiful place. And people always mispronounce my name, Boilo, and say different things like that. So I would correct them and say, no, it's Bolio. And one time I was taking classes in college, and I had an anthropology professor who first day of class says, Susan, Bolio? And I say, yeah, Bolio. And she kind of goes, huh. You know, and that was the first time I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not saying it right. You know, it was just sort of, she was just so horrified that I didn't even know how to say my own last name properly. So so I, I want you to share a little bit of your story, but I also want people to have a sense of who you are. So I am Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Red Lake Nation in Northern Minnesota. You now are the Healing Justice Director. You've been working with Indigenous communities over the last... 17 years in various projects, training, facilitation. And in the last seven years, your focus has been helping communities, organizations, and individuals understand the impacts of unresolved individual, ancestral, and collective trauma, and also to develop strategies to support the healing from that trauma. And so I just want to welcome you to this podcast. I know that you're also a 2016 Bush Leadership Fellow. You're an ACE Interface Master Trainer, a certified mind-body medicine facilitator. You also have a master's degree in public policy from the University of Minnesota. That's a little bit about the things you've done, the accomplishments you've made. Will you, will you share a little bit of who you are and your story? Yeah. 
So I really came to this healing work when I was pregnant with my daughter, who now is nine, or she will be nine at the end of May. And so that journey really started with taking the Adverse Childhood Experiences or ACE questionnaire or survey. And it's a simple 10-question survey that says, did this happen? Yes or no. If it did, you get one point. And you know, you sort of like get at the end of it, this quote-unquote ACE score. And it wasn't until taking that. And I vividly remember standing at my kitchen counter taking it and looking at my score of... Uh, I had a pretty high score of, of eight and thinking, huh, so maybe my childhood wasn't, I don't want to say atypical because unfortunately trauma and ACEs are very common, but to have such a high ACE score really began to help me understand that I wasn't just a super sensitive kid, that, that there really were some really difficult and traumatic things that had happened that had shaped and impacted me in ways that I was still very much reeling from, but didn't understand because at that time I already had two children and I was about to have my third. And at least I was in a better place than I was when I was younger. Growing up, I really grew up very depressed and I can you know talk more about that later, but you know, you start to always reference where you are from where you've been. And so because I wasn't in that super dark place, it was like, yeah, I'm good, you know? But looking at that ACEs questionnaire, I realized that I had a lot of healing to do if I didn't want to pass these patterns onto my children. And that began the journey for me. And from there, I got trained as an ACE interface presenter initially, designed a project to bring the ACE interface information to tribal communities across Minnesota. Because at that time, we were talking about historical trauma But we were not talking about ACEs and how historical trauma led to these ACE cycles in our communities and what those ACE cycles, like what those impacts were. So we were, you know, in our communities, people were working on issues of addiction and domestic violence and ICWA and all sorts of really difficult and important topics. But we weren't understanding what was driving those patterns in our communities. And so through the Tribal Near Sciences and Community Wisdom Project, which is a mouthful, we began to bring that information to our communities. From there, I became an ACE Interface Master Trainer, and I have done some training with um, Rob Anda, who was one of the original co-principal investigators of the ACEs study, and then Laura Porter out of Washington State. So that began my healing journey. And then from there, had some opportunities to work with some plant medicines down in South America, which really helped me to understand just how much healing work I had to do and began this journey of meditation and mindfulness practices, learning those, really beginning to integrate them into my life and saw how things started shifting and changing for me. So it it became less and less about the trauma per se and more and more about understanding the impacts of the trauma so that we could begin to understand what did we need to focus on for healing? What were those pieces that were missing? And as I think about my own healing journey, And as I teach about healing, it really comes down to within many indigenous communities, there's this concept of the medicine wheel where we understand ourselves to be first and foremost spiritual beings in human bodies, having human experiences and human thoughts, human emotions. And the importance of the balance of those, all those parts of ourselves, recognizing the interconnection of them. And so 
in my healing journey, starting with connecting to spirit, continuing to move through shifting my relationship with emotions and thoughts, and then finally now starting to reconnect with my body, which we can talk more about later. So I really see healing as a less about becoming something we're not, but really uncovering and getting back to the essence of who we are and what we are. And so that's really been the frame that I've used for the last six and a half, seven years of, of my own healing journey. It's so interesting though, because I, I sort of laugh when I think about where I started. And as a little girl, for a very long time, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I started out when I went to college, I started out in pre-vet and I ended up pregnant at 19 and had to shift. We had this sort of um, moment of, do you want to be a mother or do you want to be a vet? Because I knew vet school was going to be really intense. And so I'm so far from vet school, but I am so grateful for the work that I get to do. And I have such a passion for it because this healing journey that I've been on has really helped me to see the possibility and potential. I love that I get to, that gets to be the focus of my work at NDN Collective is to help the, the staff that work there to be able to reconnect with themselves, all those parts of themselves in authentic ways and really step on this healing journey, which then ripples out beyond ourselves to our families and our communities. Yeah, there's a real mirroring there, your own work, your own trauma has informed as you do the healing work informs the larger healing work you're doing in your communities oh ab absolutely yeah i i feel per like for me authenticity is such a strong value and so unless i can unless i have an ex my own experience with something it's really hard for me to teach it um i love to learn so i'm constantly learning new things but I don't feel like I can teach it until I have had my own personal experience with it so that I can share what have been some of the challenges of ex I've experienced with that. What have been, you know, some of the benefits that I've, that I've gotten? What are some of the ripple outs that I've seen in my family or in, in the work that I do? So yeah, there, for, for me, I see all of it very much connected. And that also then helps really, it, it helps drive me to continue to do my own inner work because I know how powerful that is in those ripples that go out across my family and across my community and across, you know, reaching all of the individuals that I work with and the individuals that are connected to them. So that's the thing too. Oftentimes we may have impacts with people that, you know, on people we, we will never meet because of the impact that we've had on someone that they know. I'm loving that. And I'm imagining that moment of you at the kitchen table taking this ACEs test and seeing that high score and then looking back into your childhood and having some epiphanies as you have your own children and you're a mom. So take us there for a bit. You mentioned that we could go there. What was your childhood like that eventually led to the need to do the healing work? Yeah. So I used to think for a long time, I just have a bad memory. And I, and I would often say that, you know, people would ask me something like, what was your childhood like? Or whatever. I don't know. I, I have, I just have a bad memory. And the more that I've learned about trauma and actually it was, I was sitting in a, a session that Dr. Bruce Perry, who if you have not checked out his work on childhood trauma, it's amazing. Please do. I was sitting in a session that he, where he was presenting and he was talking about dissociation. 
And as he was describing the dissociated child, I literally felt like he was pulling back the curtain, like he had been spying on me in my childhood, right? These kids often have difficulty with math. And the reason for that is because math, you know, concepts build on each other. And so dissociation is when we check out. And so if we're constantly checking out when we're learning something like math, where you need to grasp a previous concept in order to do the next thing, you know, math was really, really hard for me. Another thing was kids who are dissociated tend to be avid readers, or they might use, you know, nowadays with video games and phones and stuff like that, they might dissociate in those ways. But You know, when I was growing up, we didn't really have those things. And so books was my outlet and tons of fantasy books, you know, books that just really got me out of my own life and allowed me to experience a life somewhere else. He explained how dissociated kids will have huge chunks of their, you know, memory where they don't remember things or sort of this blackout. So for me, I honestly don't have a lot of memories from childhood, a lot of sort of concrete memories. But what I do have is, I tend to remember things from my childhood in terms of feelings that I had or sensations that I had. And so I was a really sensitive kid. I had huge emotions. And I unfortunately didn't have parents who knew how to deal with that very well. Both of them had experienced a lot of trauma in their own childhoods. My dad was a Vietnam vet with PTSD. So So there wasn't really anybody that could help me learn to navigate my emotions in a good way. And I was often told I was too emotional and, you know, made fun of for that. And so I I sort of learned to shut down in a lot of different ways. But a lot of the feelings that I remember having growing up was fear, just tons and tons of fear. I was always afraid. And because I had so little control over what happened to me, to my body and around me, you know, that fear became the way that I learned how to navigate the world. So I didn't speak up. I didn't make waves. I learned that if other people around me were happy, then I was safe. So, so there was a strong sense of safety connected to if I could make other people happy and, and people please, then, you know, then I, I would be safe. So one of the ways that I really learned how to do this to make other people happy, especially my parents, was to excel at everything I did. So I was a top student. I was in three sports. I was in extracurricular activities, band and student council and French club and, you know, all of these things and, you know, was sort of at the top of all of those things. But it, it really had a price. So in addition to trying to deal with all of what I would now call trauma in my life, I didn't realize it then, this need to like excel and be the best and prove my worth really had a toll on me. And so by the age of 11, I had my first, it was pretty weak, but I had my first suicide attempt, was put on Prozac, was on Prozac for my whole teenage years. At the age of 16, I was hospitalized for a week after a second suicide attempt. I just desperately wanted an eject button from life. It was just this constant sense of overwhelming despair, like nothing's ever going to get better. I don't want to be here anymore. So my my childhood was very painful, even though from the outside looking in, it probably looked like things were really great. And I was excelling and, and doing really well and everything. I was such an unhappy child. The contrast of the image projected to the outside with the accomplishments and the successes, and yet the internal angst, the the eject button from life, as you said, that must have been a little confusing on one hand to 
to be doing so well and yet to be hurting so badly? Yeah, I mean, I the interesting thing is, is I don't know that I ever really recognized that tension when I was growing up. Like looking back now, I can be like, yeah, that seems really odd, but I just never saw it then. And and I really, I, I think too, part of it was the, I think at that time, I thought the need to excel, I, I thought it was me. Like, that's why I was so miserable because I just, I felt like I just wasn't achieving enough. You know, I didn't recognize that it was because of these other things. So, yeah. How does an adolescent struggling with all those things move successfully into young adulthood? How do you make that transition? Oh, I didn't do it very gracefully. <laughs> Again, because I had so little control when I was younger, I went post-secondary my junior and senior years of high school. So I graduated from high school and you know my first two years of college on the same day. And then so when I transitioned to the university to start working on my pre-vet program, I found myself pregnant within seven months of being at school. <laughs> and so I went from like having like no control to suddenly there were choices everywhere and I didn't really know how to make good choices. So I just remember so vividly this. It's so interesting. I don't have a lot of vivid memories, but the ones I do tend to be those turning points in my life. I vividly remember sitting in a cell biology class uh, in December trying to do a final I had studied my ass off for this for this final. I'm big as a house because I'm about to deliver my first child in a couple of weeks. And I remember thinking like, do I want to be a vet or a mom? Because, oh my gosh, I worked so hard in this class and I barely pulled a C. And so from there, I started trying to figure out, okay, so what do I want to do? Because like I think I mentioned earlier, for most of my life, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I didn't really have a backup plan. And so it was sort of muddling around from there trying to figure out, okay, so what do I do? And my oldest daughter, she's now 24, but her dad and I, we separated when she was about a year and a half. So I became a single mom. I ended up moving back home with my parents while I tried to finish my four-year degree and then also trying to work at the time. And so it really became, you know, as a single mom, I thought, okay, I just have to finish school. I need to get this higher ed degree so that I'm not constantly struggling to make ends meet for me and my daughter. And so I ended up finishing my bachelor's in social science. From there, I thought, oh, you know, I might want to do something related to policy or law for indigenous communities. So I ended up going to the University of Minnesota Humphrey Public Policy Institute and um, got my master's in public policy while I was still working. And um, that need to prove my worth, to excel, to always, you know, I was just always busy. And so as I look back now, yes, I was a young mom at 19, but I would say I didn't really step into being there as a mom in the way that I needed to be until probably around the time that I started my healing journey, which was, you know, by that time, my, my oldest daughter was 15. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't step into that very gracefully. And, you know, it's one of those things that I often have to remind myself as I, you know, share with other parents who maybe have regrets or guilt or shame about how they may have parented their own kids. You know, we truly do 
the best we can with what we have. And for those of us that maybe didn't have a lot of good modeling to go after or didn't have a ton of supports, a lot of it was just muddling through and trying to figure out how do I stay afloat? Because I knew I couldn't afford to not stay afloat because my daughter depended on me. So So you survive parenting three young children, getting your degree, going back to the workforce and paying off student loans and doing all of that together simultaneously as a single mom. How do you get involved in the healing work that's related to the work you're doing now? I'll just clarify one quick thing. My oldest daughter was five and a half or six when I first got into the relationship with my husband, my current husband. So I wasn't in single parenting for too many years. But yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. From public policy school, I ended up getting a job where I was working with a through a foundation that was doing work with tribes across multiple states on poverty reduction. It was called the Horizons Program or Project. And so that was really my first, what I would say, gig working in tribal communities, bringing people together, teaching, and, and I absolutely loved it. From there, I ended up taking a job with the University of Minnesota Extension, continuing to work with tribes and supporting them in youth development work. And then while I was doing that, I started working on a doctorate in education. I thought, well, maybe I want to go into the education field. And then somewhere along the line, I decided, okay, I guess I don't want to do that. And so I shifted to working on a PhD in social and administrative pharmacy. And so I was working on that for a while. And I went just to school for about a year. And this was when I had after I had my third daughter. And then from there, as I mentioned, I was when I was pregnant with her, that's when I first learned about ACEs. And I went through the training when she was about three months old. So she was probably six months when I first started doing this work around trauma and healing in our indigenous communities across our tribal nations here in Minnesota. And when, when I started that project, it, it actually was really exciting for me because when I had applied to get trained, I said, like, I want to bring this work to tribes in Minnesota. And so the organization that trained me came to me the spring of that year. I got trained in the fall. They came to me in the spring and said, look, we know you want to do something to get this information to tribes. Would you be willing to design a project to do that? And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I would love that. So I designed a project. We were able to get funding and I was the director of tribal projects for that work for about three and a half years until our funding dried up. And uh, they, they still they have funding again for the project now, which is fantastic. But during that time when we didn't really have funding for it, that's when I shifted to my work with the University of Minnesota Extension. There was a SAMHSA grant that they were working under looking at working with indigenous folks and the opioid epidemic. And I remember when I came in and applied for the position, it was like, I told them, I said, I know the focus is on opioids, but I also know that people tend to use substances because of unresolved trauma. So unless I can talk about that, I don't, I'm not really interested in the job. I don't want to focus on the substance use. And they said, yes, absolutely. You can focus on understanding trauma and healing. And so that's where I really started honing 
my own skills and my own understanding, deepening my understanding, not just in trauma, but in healing. And also through my Bush Fellowship, which really focused on healing. I That's when I got trained as a mind-body medicine facilitator and had opportunities to really go deep into some of my own healing work. So pieces just kept sort of coming together and coming into my life in a way that really resonated. And I was learning so much and I was applying the things in my life. And it was actually just in June of 2022 that I stepped away from my position at the University of Minnesota Extension. I was going to try to finish my PhD. And at some point I decided, you know what, that actually is not what I want to focus my energy on. And so I began to just continue to focus on this healing journey. And that's when I had been doing some contract work with Endian Collective. And then that was when they came to me with this new position that they were creating. And I think it's so incredible that an organization like Endian had the foresight to say, you know what, we recognize that healing is something that we need to work on if we want to be able to do our work really well and be able to have our staff be supported and well. And so they created a whole position to do that, which I'm just just still sort of have to pinch myself and could never have imagined this journey would take me to this position, working with Indigenous peoples across Canada, the United States, Mexico, and supporting the Indian Collective staff and the amazing work that they do with Indigenous folks across Turtle Island. So you're doing this work and you're doing your own personal work, really honing in on not just trauma, but the healing necessary as a result of the trauma. How does Hoffman come into the picture? That's a great question. And it's also, it goes back to that piece I had mentioned, I think when you and I first started chatting that I used to be someone who planned everything. I had my whole life planned out. Control was really important. And I realized now it was this false sense of control, but it was really hard for me to just let go and allow things to happen. Um, But I've been doing more and more of that and really trusting and tuning into the energy and where it leads. And so there was something that a friend had shared about an all indigenous meditation retreat that was going to happen in New Mexico. And it happened last summer at the end of August. So I applied and I attended that. And at that retreat, two really important things happen that connect to me coming to the Hoffman. So one is in these hours and hours of silent meditation that we did at this retreat, I became really aware of the high level of terror and rage that I held in my body. And that really scared me. I was like, I don't know what to do with that because I have never seen anybody do anything good with terror and rage. <laughs> and so I was really I was really scared about that and I didn't know what to do with that. And then one afternoon, one of the individuals who was at the retreat with me, his name is Tim Harjo, he went through the Hoffman process and he was sharing about his experience, you know, really broadly, but sharing a bit about the Hoffman process and how impactful it had been for him. And as he was talking about connecting with your inner child, I started crying. And there was something that resonated so deeply. I I realized that I had been so disconnected from this inner child, my inner child, and I realized that it was impacting my ability to show up for my kids in ways that they needed. So for example, 
maybe about five or six months ago, my husband and I started doing something called mind, body, soul time with our kids. I got the idea from a parenting class thing I was taking, and it's just 10 minutes of one-on-one time with each kid each day. And it's been fantastic. And it's been really challenging because my daughter, Lydia, who's eight, almost nine, she's she too is a very sensitive soul with big emotions, but she also has a huge imagination and so much creativity. And so she always wants to play dolls or make believe or something like that. And oh my gosh, Drew, it, it was always such a struggle. It felt so unnatural. And I would just dread having to do mind, body, soul time with her for that reason. And I always felt so exhausted afterwards. And I knew that the message I was sending her without saying a word because she could read my energy was, I didn't want to play with her. And that was not the message that I wanted to send. And something in Tim's story told me, if you can connect with that inner child, that's going to help you be able to address whatever this block is that's making it hard for you to do this imaginative, creative play with your daughter. So Tim had said, like, you know, if anyone's interested, contact me, let me know. And so a few weeks after I got back from the the retreat, I emailed Tim and I said, I'm very interested. And we called and had had a long conversation. And from there, I I applied for the process. And that's how I came to Hoffman. That moment in time when Tim is describing what it's like to be in touch with your inner child and tears just start coming down your cheeks. Can you take us there a little bit? And maybe it was a wordless experience of both connecting to the pain of parenting your children, but also did you have a sense of connection to that little girl that you used to be or that still lives inside you? Yeah, I I feel like that, that was really what I felt in my chest was like this tightening and constricting in my chest as I thought about that little girl, the little girl inside of me. And there was this deep longing to get to know her to reconnect with her because I felt like even in my childhood, when I was a child, I didn't feel like in a lot of ways I got to have a childhood that was carefree. (laughs) And then becoming a mother at such a young age, there just, there was so much responsibility so early on. And so it had been really easy for me to bury that little girl and just see her as unimportant. But something in what Tim was saying, I could feel in my essence that reconnecting with her was a critical next step in my healing journey. Beautiful. So Susan, let's go. Let's go right there. Take us to your process. And I'm curious in particular about that little girl. Were you able to find her at the Hoffman process? Yeah. So I I found her in several different ways. And one of the ways that I didn't expect to see her was in beginning to sort of metabolize and release a lot of that pent up rage and terror that she had. Those, you know, she just didn't have a voice for so long and just had to go along with what was happening to and around her. And so being able to have ways for her to express was Oh, that was so, I I almost want to cry thinking about it because it was so essential. And it was like, I was able to really see and feel her pain in that. 
you know, I remember having conversations with her during the process and really just saying, I'm so sorry for not allowing you to be able to have that voice, even when I got to be older as an adult myself, because I just, you know, she had been shut down for so long. It was like, I I didn't even, I didn't even know she was there anymore. So having a space for her to have a voice and expression in processing those things that happened to her was a really important piece of connecting with her. And then another really important piece was in some of the things in the process, like learning how to play again, learning how to see through childlike eyes, learning how to let go of that need or that sense of like, I have to show up all put together or look like, you know, a certain way, or I can't look quote unquote dumb or goofy or like whatever it is, like just allowing, like sort of tuning into her and and being like, okay, like, what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to show up in this moment? And she really surprised me in some ways. And when I was able to connect with her really, really deeply and not allow the mind to, you know, shut her down during the process, honestly, like that was some of the most just like freeing and invigorated that I felt during the process was, was in really connecting with her and allowing her expressions in in all forms, in joy, in rage, in, you know, sadness and grief and in all of that. So it was uh, learning to understand those experiences from her lens. But it really was because again, there, there weren't a lot of actual memories. It was so much of like the emotions that were coming up and through her emotions that, you know, that I, that I had had to repress all those years. That was what I was experiencing coming up and out and through in the process. Up and out and through in the process. All those words also have deep connections to your body, don't they? I'm imagining it's a very cellular, visceral experience you're having. Yeah, absolutely. That's another thing that has been really beautiful in the last, I would say, probably six months of this healing journey. Going through the process helped to speed this process up of reconnecting to my body, of really beginning to tune into the language of my body and the sensations of the body and how my emotions are connected to sensations in my body. And, you know, beginning to to recognize that if I can tune into the body, it can give me insight into what's going on in my emotions. And then how do I want to sort of move from there? So I never would have imagined emotions being a visceral <laughs> you know experience but th- it, but they very much are the, again just it's so beautiful to remember how interconnected the mind the body the heart and the spirit all are and going through the process really helped me experience that in a new and deeper way and that's one of the things that i think is important it's been important for me on my healing journey is like there's different levels of knowing. There's like, okay, I can know something in my head and that's a sort of like a knowing of it. But then when it sinks into the body or it sinks into the heart and the body, or there's a connection with the spirit, heart and body, that knowledge becomes embodied and it becomes something that then I can actually do something with. And so I know this is going a little bit off topic, but related to that, you know, one, as I mentioned, one of the struggles I, I had for a lot of years was 
always overachieving and do, do, do and go, go, go. And, and so tuning back into my body, especially since the Hoffman process, I knew that I was out of balance in that, but now I feel the imbalance in my body. And that allows me a greater ability to be able to do something about it because I can feel the imbalance. It's not just, oh yeah, I know I'm working too much or gone too much or whatever. Like I feel it in my body. So then I can use my body as a way to sort of gauge, like, is this too much or can I do more as opposed to allowing my mind to say, oh yeah, you can do more. You can do more. You can do more. So uh, yeah, I think the body is such an essential piece to come back to in this healing journey because there's so much wisdom there and, and going through the process helped me to connect with that wisdom in a deeper way. Beautiful. Body as doorway, body as healing, body as opening, as indicator to what you need, and then the body can help you get it. Susan, I want to ask about your work pre-process and all of the healing you've done, both personally and in your community. How did that line up with the Hoffman orientation, how do you see where's the Venn diagram of the work you're trying to bring to your communities and the Hoffman work? I saw and felt over and over and over again the overlap between them, you know, just in even, for example, drew the framing of the four parts of ourselves and that recognition of that and the focus on the spirit as the center, as the leader, as the, you know, like that recognition that we are first and foremost spiritual beings. So, so that really, really resonated with me, that framing. And then when the Hoffman talks about patterns, I, I love to geek out on neuroscience stuff and understanding how the brain wires itself and how things can become automatic reactions and and all of this. And so as I think about, or as I thought about in the process patterns, it really was about understanding or, or having that connection of like, oh yeah, so this, these patterns, these things that we saw or these things that we experienced over and over and over again, that became the the, the neural pathway, the, the wiring. And that's why that's the automatic response when we are not consciously aware of what's going on for us when we get triggered or activated into that fight flight response we fall back on those old patterns those those ways of how we showed up in the world that helped us to survive in the past and so it i just saw so many overlaps with all of it and it helped give me new language for what I, you know, some of this heady stuff around neuroscience and whatever that that I had been sort of studying and, and looking at and integrating in my own life, it gave me new language, both to more easily understand it myself and also to just generally talk about it with other people. I've had the opportunity to connect with some folks who I went through the process with since then. And just having that language, it's been really helpful for me in grounding some of these theories and things that I've been looking at and, and um, learning about. You know, there's a, a conference, International Trauma Conference, and, and there's always such great information there, but it's so heady, right? There's there's so much like neuroscience language and the different parts of the brain and da-da-da-da-da, and you can really get lost in all of that. So I loved how the Hoffman and the, the process simplifies that, and yet it's so accurate to what the science is showing and how the brain works and how the brain wires and the interneurobiology. And I mean, just all of that. It's, I was seeing the connections everywhere. That seems 
important to you that although there's so much information out there that really can take you down wonderful insights and epiphanies, the process helped ground it and clarify it inside you in a way that you were able to understand, hold on to, and therefore make it more accessible around how to utilize it for your own healing. Does that feel accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When the neuroscience talks about the patterns and pathways that get developed through repetition over time, that's one thing. And we can say, okay, yeah, you know, that's that's sort of like how I was programmed. But but the, the piece that I felt was so helpful for me on my journey and helping to, for this knowledge that I had in my head to go deeper into a greater embodied wisdom was really that piece around, yes, this may be how my brain got wired and my patterns are not who I am. And I feel like in my healing journey, there's, you know, because there's been so many patterns that are connected around you know, needing people pleasing in order to feel safe and fix it caretaker again, because if everyone's happy, then I'm safe. You know, there's so many patterns that have been showing up and that are interconnected. And it was like, okay, I'm okay with showing the quote unquote good side. When I show up in that way, people, it feels good to other people because either they have their needs met or I don't rock the boat or whatever that is. But I realized that some of those patterns that I had or those beliefs that I had, some of those that shadow side within me, I was still using a ton of energy to repress that because there was this belief that I had pre-processed that if I show these things, then people will know who I really am. I can't continue to put up this facade of like who, who I am. And so this probably is going off track a little bit, but I I just want to share a really quick story about this that helped me to sort of understand this shadow side and working with it post-process. At the beginning of, I believe it was February, my extended family went to the Twin Cities. That was, it was what we were doing for like our Christmas, Christmas thing. Instead of getting gifts for each other, we were going to have, you know, hang out and have an experience together. And so that Friday, as we were getting ready to leave, my husband and I were packing up the car and I had several meetings that I still had to take. I was hoping to take them on the road, but we were running behind and we needed to go get the our, two of our daughters from school. We also have a son. And so I said to my husband, I was like, can you just go get the girls from school? I'll take my calls here at home. I'll Asher can stay with me. And then um, when you get back, then we'll see where my calls are at. Maybe we can get on the road then. He's like, yeah, that's fine. So we had been loading up the car prior to that. And when I came inside, that was when I realized like, you know what, I just, I'm feeling too stressed about trying to get this all done right now. And that's when I asked him to just go pick up the girls. So he went and picked up the girls. And as I was on one of my calls, he calls me and I put myself on mute on the work call. And he tells me that the back gate of the car was open. And what all did we have in the back? And I'm like, you know, I, I, I don't know, like our stuff or, you know, I was like, but I, I can't, like, I can't talk to you about this right now. So and he was like, okay, fine, I'll figure it out. So then he messaged me a little bit later and he was like, yeah, okay, I found everything. It's all good. I was like, okay, good. So he gets the girls, he comes home, we get in the car, we head to the cities. By this, by the time we get to the Twin Cities, it's late. It's like nine o'clock at night and we are um, start unloading the car. And as I'm unloading the back of the car, I'm like, where's my bag? And it dawned on me, 
my bag fell out of the car back in Brainerd. And I lost my shit. I completely lost it. I'm in this public place, you know, like outside. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I'm like wigging out. I'm so mad. And part of why I'm so mad, I, there's still a part of me that feels like I have to justify it. But for anybody who was at the Hoffman process with me or knows me, knows like my earrings are like my thing. I get gifted earrings. My daughter, my oldest daughter has beaded me some earrings. So all of my favorite earrings were in this little pouch that I bring with me when I travel in my bag. I just was like so beside myself and I just completely lost it. To make a long story short, the bag was found. The police went and got it. My husband's parents met him halfway between here and the cities because it's like a two and a half hour drive that night to get the bag. And and it all worked out. My pre-Hoffman self would have been absolutely horrified what I had done. I would have been so embarrassed the whole weekend. I would have had a hard time interacting with family. I would have felt like a complete fraud. Here I am doing this healing work. And then I, you know, totally lose my shit on my husband. But having gone through the process, I was able to sort of step back and be like, what happened there? What came up for me? What patterns were there? And one of the things I realized, like one of the patterns that came up for me was this sense of helplessness. There's nothing to be done. It's gone. Sort of this sense of hopelessness and helplessness that I felt for so many years as a little girl. So that was such a big trigger for me. I just went into it. But post-process, in reflecting on it, I was able to, even that night and the next day, and then for weeks after, continue to remind myself that pattern is not who you are. Yes, you showed up that way, but that pattern is not who you are. You don't have to feel like shame about that. Yes, I want to try to make sure that thing, you know, like I don't completely lose it like that on on the regular, which honestly, and this was the part that surprised me. I had never in my life, to my knowledge, ever done that, ever. I was so grateful that I had the tools from the process to work with that experience and to to move through it and navigate it in a good way as opposed to getting caught up in the shame spiral. And then like, I can't even imagine where I would be if I had gotten caught up in a shame spiral around that because that, that was a really big deal. It was a really big deal, you know, like how I showed up in that moment. And so a couple of days later, my husband and I were, were able to sit down and talk about it. And I was able to really own the stuff that was mine from that and share with him some of the learnings and insights that I had had over the last few days about what had happened. And I was so grateful for those, for the tools that I learned at the process to be able to navigate that situation. Susan, rarely, I say rarely, but actually, as I'm saying it, it's like, maybe it's always true that the healing and powerful moments of rewriting the story also come paired with the moments of struggling and pain and losing your shit, as you talked about. There were both both of those full-on pattern and yet deeply rewriting of the story on the right road. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I've had a few other moments of of just really deep you know, being able to use the tools in a way that has shifted how I show up, you know, in that instance, I wasn't able to catch it before it happened. I think 
potentially because it was such a, uh, such a deep rooted pattern for me. But there have been other times where I've been able to actually catch it. Like I'm in it. And before I act on it, I notice it and I'm able to stop it and pause it and ask myself like, okay, I know where this goes. I don't want to go there. What do I want to do instead? And so I could give you several examples of that. It's all of that. It's like those moments that are the hardest, that, that can be the hardest, that can also be the most transformative. So super grateful. I love the way in which you're describing the ability to catch it in the moment and sometimes catch it after. Either one is an opportunity for healing and rewiring those neural pathways. Susan, I want to ask you before we end here, I just want to ask you about your work with Indigenous peoples in, in, as Canada calls them, First Nation, and in particular around historical trauma and the ways in which it's patterns that have been passed down through generations and certainly our parents, like we learn about in the process. But also there's another layer that gets overlaid as a result of the trauma, the oppression, the discrimination is too light a word that white people have put upon First Nations. Can you describe a little bit about why your work is so important and in particular how you hold the healing around cultural trauma? You know, one of the things that I think is really important for people who don't know a lot about what happened to Indigenous people in both the United States and in Canada is a recognition of how the boarding schools or the residential schools really shifted the ways that children were raised and families interacted and the way that culture and traditions got passed down. So pre-contact, there's some interesting stories from anthropologists who came, who were over here um, writing about how Native parents were just too permissive. We didn't spank our kids. We didn't, we didn't have corporal punishment and all these sorts of things. And in many of our cultures, because um, there, there are over 500 tribes across the United States, in many of our cultures, the, the word for, for child or children or baby is connected to something around sacred being or sacred bundle or little spirit being. So there was this recognition of the gift that this child is a gift. And this child comes into not just the nuclear family, not just with a mother and a father and their siblings, but into this really strong, interconnected, extended family network where aunts and uncles, the names for them are the same as mom and dad, where cousins the way that we would talk about the language we used to talk about our cousins was the same as sister and brother. So there were these really large extended family groups that loved and supported this little sacred bundle, this, this little spirit being that came into this world. So just to give that context of how children were raised pre-contact, and then in the boarding schools where children are taken, some as young as two and three years old, some were gone for five years, 10 years, 
15 years, right, in these schools where abuse and neglect ran rampant. There was so much physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, neglects of all kinds, in addition to the goal of boarding schools and residential schools was assimilation. It was not to teach children. It was to assimilate Indigenous peoples because the adults, the the governments, the Canadian and and United States governments had not been very successful at assimilating the Indigenous adults. And so that's why they took the children. And so they clearly didn't have the neuroscience back then. But if what you're trying to do is completely change a people, taking the children is a good strategy, right? Because we know and understand now that those experiences create the programming and the patterns that then get played out throughout the rest of life. So one of the things that happened a lot in these schools was shaming shaming of culture, shaming of language, physical harm caused when these children would speak the only language they knew, they would be physically harmed for it. When the children came out of the schools, many of them no longer knew their indigenous languages, or if they knew and remembered it, there was a strong association and connection, a tie with pain, with speaking the language. And so I've heard just heartbreaking stories of elders who were in the boarding schools or residential schools and would not share their traditional indigenous language with their children or grandchildren because of that fear. And so that's one way that language didn't get passed on. You know, the elders were really the culture bearers and helped to teach children. And so when you remove children from the community, that transference of knowledge can't happen in the same way. And so many of these kids left the boarding schools and residential schools unable to speak their language. They didn't have a sense, strong sense of connection and who they were because of all of the trauma. They were shut down from their spirit, their mind, their body, their hearts. Many of them turned to substances or other things to be able to cope with the emotions that were coming up to try and numb those out. So that's, you know, one of the ways that substances really started infiltrating our communities and impacting. And then, of course, you know, there's all sorts of things that get tied and connected to that. So there's a, there's an awful lot that our Indigenous nations and our Indigenous people are trying to heal from. So this is how I think about it, Drew. And in my own healing work, it's very much been this understanding of if I can't connect to my own spirit, mind, body, and heart, it makes it truly impossible to genuinely and authentically connect with others. Because it's through that connection to our body, mind, spirit, and heart that we're able then to connect with others. You know, the neurobiology and the mere neurons, the the energy that our hearts are picking up, the, the information that our spirits are sending each other. There's so many ways that we are connected, interconnected, and that we share information. And so if I'm disconnected from myself, I can't possibly tune into someone else. And that also that someone else goes beyond as indigenous peoples, we believe it goes beyond just our human relatives. It, it extends out to our, you know, our ant, plant and animal relatives and, all, and the elements and all of the ways that we recognize our relationality, our relationship and interconnection with all beings, the es- that spirit, that essence that's in everything that's alive. So, you know, for me as an indigenous woman, that reconnection to self first has been really important. 
But it's also this, this remembering that we heal best in relationship with others. So in some ways, it's a bit of a, I don't want to say a catch 22, but in our communities, it can be really hard because we have generations upon generations upon generations of trauma that's been passed down. And I often think of this trauma energy compounding over time, right? When we don't have the ability to heal or to transform or shift it, it just gets compounded into the next generation. The next generation carries their own trauma plus the trauma of those that came before them. And so, you know, we we really need those those safe healing spaces in order to do the individual healing and finding those safe healing spaces within our communities. There are some for sure, but that's one of the things that in the work that I do and other, and other indigenous peoples that I work with, we're trying to do more and more of is, you know, first our own healing work so that we can hold those spaces. We can hold those spaces for our relatives to heal. We don't heal others, we can, but we can hold the space for them to do their own healing and work. And so, you know, that's, I think, as, as Indigenous people, as we are working to heal these generations of trauma that have been passed down, that's really the focus that, that I use and those that I, that I work with do. And I honestly wouldn't want to be doing anything else. I feel so grateful to be able to use what I've learned through the pain of my own journey to be able to transform that and be able to show up in ways and be able to connect authentically with people. I know what that dark place is. I've been there. And I also know what it's like to live in the beauty of life. It's not a Pollyanna view of life, but rather the recognition that this is a bit off topic, but as I think about, there's been so much grief in our Indigenous communities. And I lost my dad um, in January. It was two years. And my dad and I were very close. And, you know, I loved him very much. And and as I was working with and through the grief that was coming up, I had this understanding that grief and love are inextricably connected the level of grief that I was experiencing after my dad's transition from this world was directly equivalent to the amount of love that I had for my dad. We don't grieve those things that, are, that leave if we don't love them. And so I think as Indigenous people, it is this invitation to learn, relearn how do we hold all of life grief and love with that tenderness, with that openness that's needed to be able to allow that energy to move and not get stuck in our systems, whether it's in our bodies and our hearts and our minds. And so as I think about the work that I do, I, I just, I feel like that's so important is like, how do we relearn how to move and navigate with all that life brings, the beauty and the pain of it? Is there more you'd like to share about this whole journey before we close? I think one of the things that I want to share is I was sort of like thinking about the process and some things that have really shifted for me and that shift began to shift for me in really big ways in the process was this piece around reclaiming my power. You know, as I mentioned several times, not not having much control as a child really, you know, I, I felt really powerless in in so many situations. And there was a, a specific activity we were doing on, I think it was day three. As I was going through that activity, I found myself sort of drumming and singing back my spirit. 
I was given my spirit name when I was, I think I was about 12. And my name is Nagana Benesi Ikwe, which means leading Thunderbird woman. And for most of my life, up until that moment at the Hoffman, I didn't believe I was worthy of that name. That name carries a lot of responsibility because the Thunderbird is one of, um, as Anishinaabe people, one of our most powerful Manadus or spirits. They are the protectors of the Anishinaabe people. They can bring storms. They can bring in the rains, which can cleanse and heal. And, and as I was going through that process, I could feel all of that in my body. And I could feel my spirit starting to come back in as I was drumming and singing that name, Nagana Benesi Ikwe, Nagana Benesi Ikwe. And I began to have a new understanding of what that name meant and a new understanding of how I wanted to move forward in this life as Nagana Benesi Ikwe, in my power. I'm no longer afraid, but rather willing to step into the fear not shy away from it. I, I knew that in doing that, that will continue to allow me to show up more and more in the ways that my people need, that my family needs, that my community needs. And so I just wanted to share that because for so many years, there was this really toxic relationship I had with power because power had always been used as power over in my life. And so being able to reclaim my power in the process. I mean, when I think about the process, I mean, there, there were so many transformative moments, but that was one of the most transformative moments for me. And I continue to see it unfold in my life as, you know, new opportunities come in instead of being like, oh, I don't want to do that. Be like, hmm, is that something that I want to do? Right. Or I'm sitting in a meeting or having a conversation with someone and I feel like I need to say something, but there's that fear. And then it's like, okay, but I'm not going to move from that place of fear. What is my spirit telling me in this moment? What needs to be said? What do I need to do? And so being able to reconnect in that way and move from that place of spirit and power as opposed to fear, I'm so excited about life and what I know will continue to unfold. So super grateful for the process and all that I've learned and, and how it continues to just unfold in my life in really beautiful ways. It's almost like that memory then from the past also is a day-to-day -day memory that you allow to nurture and sustain you in the moments of life today. Susan, thank you so much. I'm really grateful. How, do, how does it feel to have taken this time to tell your story, to share your insights? What do you notice in your body in particular because you're so connected to it in your heart? Yeah, I feel like right now and throughout our conversation, I've just felt a lot of energy and movement in my heart center, you know, moments of like expansion and moments of contraction where there's a bit of like, ooh, should I share this? And then it's like, let's move from that place of, you know, of openness and of connection and power. And so then that like, sort of noticing the ebb and flow of the expansion and contraction and noticing the thoughts as they come in. And so yeah, it's it's felt good. And there have been parts that have felt uncomfortable. But I also, you know, 
have learned that that discomfort, that just means that's a growth edge for me. And so I've felt myself growing in this conversation. And for that, Drew, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.